Modern trade wars taking place right now in the world around us are costing the global economy trillions of dollars. But the impact of what is ultimately just taxes, tariffs, subsidies and quotas on internationally traded goods may be all but insignificant compared to fights over a far more valuable resource, skilled labour. International trade used to be a slow and expensive practice, with small unoptimised ships carrying goods that needed to be loaded and unloaded by hand at either end. The standard intermodal shipping container was first invented in the early 20th century, but it wasn't until 50 years later in the early 1960s that its popularity exploded and became the industry standard for international shipping. Today it's unusual to transport goods without them being packed into one of these containers. Entire fleets of the world's largest ships and shipping ports have been designed from the ground up to work with nothing other than these containers. Now, highly efficient systems are often the most fragile, and these rigidities have caused some problems. One of the largest contributors to supply shortages in 2021 was a shortage of shipping containers rather than a shortage of goods. Despite these problems though, global trade is now easier and cheaper than it ever has been, which means that it's often cheaper to make something on the other side of the planet and ship it over the ocean than it is to make something domestically. In fact, it's almost always cheaper. Even in the USA, a country with a huge manufacturing industry, only 53% of final demand for manufactured goods is supplied by domestic manufacturers. To a lot of people, that figure might even sound high, which only shows just how normal it's become for our demands to be met from suppliers all over the world. Globalisation has overwhelmingly been a positive process for the global economy. Dozens of countries around the world have been able to rapidly develop by providing low-cost goods and services to advanced economies, and many of them now have robust advanced domestic markets of their own. But of course, there have been losers too. Workers producing items that can easily be shipped all over the world now have to compete with everybody in the world, not just in their own country. Job losses are never politically popular, which is why despite the advantages of free trade, import restrictions exist in every major economy around the world. One of the most valuable and influential things entering and exiting economies these days are people. And just like goods being packed onto container ships, it's become a lot easier for skilled workers to be moved from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world with very few real restrictions. Just like free trade, skilled migration already has winners and already has losers. And just like free trade, these movements are inevitably going to become a powerful geopolitical tool. So, what countries are currently gaining the most from the increased movement of skilled workers around the world? What countries are losing the most? What economic tools could countries use to fight these skills wars? And finally, what impact could this have on individual people, individual nations, and ultimately the global economy? These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high-stakes wager for your small business. You want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available, and that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the right people for your team faster and for free. At Economics Explained, we used to pay a lot of money to find a decent candidate, but since using LinkedIn, we've been able to fill our roster with A players without missing a beat. It's just so easy to create a job post that we've been able to get specific and hire some really specialised roles like thumbnail designer, rather than having to pad out a role to make it worth the time and frustration of hiring. And then you can add the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to get extra referrals from your network. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritise who you'd like to interview and hire. Hiring the right people has allowed us to put out more content at a much higher quality than before without having to shell out constantly for headhunters or recruiters. That's part of the reason why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in developing quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. 
Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash ee. That's linkedin.com slash ee to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Skilled migration is almost always a net benefit for the nation receiving the skilled migrant because the government can control how many people are allowed into the country, under what conditions, and for what skills. Usually, advanced economies, which are the most attractive destination for skilled migrants, are not going to open up skilled visa programs to foreigners if roles can be filled with citizens because it's those citizens that vote for government leadership and they're unlikely to vote for a government that's replaced their job with a skilled migrant. Skilled migrants can also contribute to the economy in other ways as well. Here in Australia, our economy is heavily dependent on providing university degrees to international students. Despite our country's immense natural resource wealth, education is still one of our largest exports. What this does for the economy is bring in someone that will directly contribute a significant sum to the local economy through university fees, and then contribute more to pay for housing, food and general consumer goods and services. They do this for three to five years before they become skilled workers at the very start of their lives, and the country hosting these students can either decide to send them back to their home country, or offer them a working visa where their skills will contribute to the host country's industries and their taxes to the host country's government. The United States, Canada and the UK also greatly benefit from skilled migration and international students, although to a lesser degree than Australia. Although not as direct, countries can also benefit from skills transfers in other ways as well. Certain countries, especially those developing major economic projects, often attract expatriate workers, which are different from skilled migrant workers because they only intend to be in the country for a fixed amount of time. While the host country doesn't get to keep the skilled workers, and depending on how long the expat stays in the country they might not earn tax revenue from their work either, it can still sometimes be an even more beneficial arrangement because the workers arrive right as they are needed, they apply their skills to develop a project, and then they leave. When Taiwan was rapidly expanding industrial infrastructure in the 1970s, it brought in thousands of expatriate workers to help design and oversee these once-in-a-generation projects. Instead of training its own citizens to be able to design and construct a nuclear power plant from scratch, it brought in experts from all over the world. These expats had already constructed similar power plants before and they were ready to start construction instantly rather than wait a decade for a local team to receive the training that they would need to do it themselves. These skills also wouldn't be very useful after the plant was built because in the 50 years since, Taiwan has only ever built two more nuclear power plants and two of them are now being decommissioned. The construction of major projects like this is an extreme example, but there are similar projects to this happening all around the world at the moment. The Gulf states have intentionally been building big dumb mega projects for decades now. The reason they've been doing this is not because the world's tallest tower or man-made islands have any utility in the middle of a desert with endless space and waterfront, they do it because big projects like these attract skilled foreign workers and businesses that want to make money off them, and in doing so set up in the host country, share in the skills and also make the region a self-sustaining centre of business and commerce. Even on a smaller scale, temporary expats can add a lot of value to an economy by training the local workforce on how to establish and run local industries. A major reason why countries like Japan, South Korea and Israel were able to develop so quickly in the last half century, when compared to early industrialisers like the USA and Western Europe, is because the technology was already created and they could hire skilled people from around the world to teach them how to set up and run advanced world leading industries. A quick disclaimer is that, of course, it's not as simple as just flying in people with industry skills. And even with the benefits of being able to import existing technologies and expertise, these countries still had to manage their economies very carefully. But this certainly made it, at the very least, a lot faster. Today all of these countries are major contributors to the global economy. They're home to extremely valuable industries and their exports are cheaper and often of better quality than what could have been provided by the global market without them. 
Part of the reason for the collapse in global shipping prices that we explored at the start of this video is because of the shipyards that were built in South Korea. Today the country is the largest shipbuilder in the world, and just like you might find it hard to find a consumer good that wasn't made in China, it would probably be equally as difficult to find one that wasn't transported on a South Korean ship. This is an amazing demonstration of the general rule that every change in the global economy changes at least two other things. But in the case of the free exchange of skills, it seems as if these changes are nothing but positive. But just like the free trade of goods and services across the world, skills exchanges have had even bigger winners and bigger losers. During our research on this video we were lucky enough to speak to Dr Billery, the Dean of Bocconi, one of the top universities in Italy. His insights were fascinating, not only from his distinguished career as an educator, but also as someone at the forefront of one of the countries most heavily impacted by the free flow of skilled labour around the world. Actually, Italy is a net sender of graduates rather than a net receiver, and that's one of the parts that the country is complaining about. So we, we'd love to have to attract more uh, people with a degree uh, rather than uh, letting them leave to, to other countries. So I think from the country perspective, it is a, a problem, especially if you are uh, one of the sending countries. However, let me say two things on this. One is that uh, from the individual level perspective, uh, having more freedom of movement is certainly giving the right incentive to individuals. You want to build a, a good life, you have good ideas. Uh, it's, a, it's fantastic for the world to let these people move. Uh, the second point of view is that we have to understand from, from the competition for talent perspective that countries that are uh, losing these individuals, maybe because they tend to be overeducated for the level of the economy in that country, should think seriously about uh, the, the opportunities that in a, in a specific country or region are given to these individuals. Italy is an advanced economy with very high standards of living by global standards, but its economy has still been falling behind its Western European peers, which have in turn been falling behind a lot of other major advanced economies around the world, the USA in particular. Job opportunities for young skilled workers in Italy are limited, youth unemployment is high, and youth underemployment, where people are working jobs that don't utilise their skills and normally earn less than they could be, is also another major problem. The definition of employment that most economists putting together national unemployment statistics use is anyone over the age of 16 that has completed at least one hour's worth of work in the previous week. What's more is that if that bar wasn't already low enough, unemployment is only counted amongst people who don't do at least one hour's worth of work in a week, but are still actively looking for a job. With more gig economy work, they can easily give people an hour's worth of work without really providing any of the benefits to the workers or the economy that would come from a typical job adding value in a skilled role, unemployment figures normally sound a lot better than reality. Now we're going to be making two entire videos on the fading Italian economy and the lies that economists tell using economic figures respectively, so I don't want to get stuck into too much detail here just yet, but make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on those once they come out. The takeaway in the context of the free exchange of global skills is that despite making heavy investments into education, and despite still being an advanced economy with high incomes by global standards, a lot of Italian students are still moving overseas as soon as they can to find better opportunities. On an individual level this is understandable. If better opportunities exist then people should have the right to take advantage of them. But on a national level it presents a serious dilemma. 
Education in Italy and most economies around the world is heavily subsidised by the government to a high school level. Then in a lot of other economies, Italy included, tertiary education is also subsidised in one form or another. If an Italian student has their education paid for up to graduation from university, then they go on to work in Italy for the rest of their lives, the additional income they will get from being able to work in a more productive role made possible by that education should, all other things being equal, more than pay itself back in additional income taxes and overall economic prosperity for the country. But if that student graduates university and then can't find work in Italy and decides to move overseas for better opportunities, then they won't pay taxes in Italy and their labour will be adding value to some other economy. Communications technologies, easy international travel and the widespread adoption of skilled workers programs have made this far easier than it was in the past. Just like removing the barriers to global trade created a race to the bottom of which country could produce things for the lowest cost, removing the barriers to workers has created a race to the top of which countries are willing to pay the most for certain skills. Italy is one of the biggest losers of highly skilled graduates in the world, but other advanced economies like New Zealand, Spain, Portugal, Greece and to a lesser extent Canada all suffer from the same issues. It's not fair for a country to put restrictions on where its people can live and work. The few countries in the world that do are not exactly models of ideal economic outcomes. But it's also not fair or sustainable for taxpayers to subsidise the education of workers that will never produce output for the country that paid for their skills in the first place. Italy is a country that is already struggling with an ageing population and declining worker productivity. It really cannot afford to lose what few young skilled workers it already has, so it's going to need a solution to this problem that doesn't appear to have a fair answer. So far we've also only looked at advanced economies, and while they are going to have to deal with these challenges as well, they have it easy compared to developing and undeveloped economies. Even if workers can find jobs in these countries, income levels are far lower than the global average and working conditions are generally worse. Beyond just income opportunities, developing economies will have poorer healthcare, fewer utilities and yeah, less access to education for people and their children. A lot of people from advanced countries will live and work overseas as an experience or as a way to help their career, often with the intention of eventually moving back to their home countries. But a lot of young people from developing economies gather skills with the sole intention of working in an advanced economy. Certain industries suffered when they were outcompeted by outsourced service and manufacturing centres in countries with lower labour costs. But this trend could threaten entire economies that simply can't be competitive while losing their youngest and most productive workers. But if this is already such a problem and one that's likely to get even worse, then how are countries going to fight for skills? Regular trade restrictions are implemented in four sort of distinct levels using two different approaches, and skills wars will be fought the same way, only in reverse. The tools that countries use to limit foreign trade are direct trade restrictions like import taxes, quotas and bans, or domestic subsidies. If a country doesn't want China to flood its local market with low-cost consumer goods, it can introduce an import tax on them, which means after that artificial increase in price, the imported goods will be less competitive than domestic goods. If that doesn't work, then another alternative is just to directly limit how much of a good can be imported every year through a quota system. This will incentivise local manufacturing to fill in the shortfall. In certain cases, countries can also just outright ban certain products from entering their domestic market, either from select countries or from anyone. All of these will artificially limit the supply of goods in the economy, increasing local prices, which is inflation, but a lot of times that's a sacrifice that these countries are willing to make. Most countries by default have basic trade restrictions because they want to protect their local industries that provide employment. But given the benefits of global trade, they will enter into trade agreements to drop these restrictions with select trading partners. The most obvious example of this is the European Union. 
which outside of very select products mandates that all countries trade freely with one another without any of these restrictions. Since inflation is not politically popular and trade deals can create entirely new job opportunities by expanding local industries, another more subtle tool is often used by governments to protect their local industries. If the country trying to defend itself against cheap Chinese imported consumer goods was forced to drop their tariffs, quotas and bans as part of a trade agreement, they could achieve the same outcome by just subsidising local industries. If domestic businesses were given grants or access to guaranteed buyback programs by the government, they could continue to operate competitively and keep on employing people. If a microwave imported from China would cost $100 and a locally manufactured microwave would cost $120, then a $20 subsidy could keep the locally made goods competitive in the market in the same way that a $20 tariff on the Chinese import could. The subsidy approach also means that goods are kept cheaper. Microwaves in the market using subsidies would cost $100, whereas microwaves in the market using tariffs or quotas would cost $120. Now, while this sounds great, there is always a trade-off. If the government is spending money to make local goods more competitive, it is eventually going to have to offset that additional spending with additional taxation, which should, all other things being equal, make the purchasing power of the average household exactly the same as if microwaves were $120. It's just now that extra $20 is going to be paid in taxes rather than at the checkout. In reality, all other things are not equal. Inflation or the higher price level of goods and services normally impacts poorer households more greatly, while higher taxes more heavily impact richer households. Again, what's important for the issues of trade wars and skills wars is that there is a trade-off. Often one of the biggest advantages of subsidies is just maintaining industries that are worth having even if they aren't globally competitive. One of the largest subsidy programs in the world is the US government's buyback of agricultural products, often well above market prices. The stability this offers US farmers, who know how much their harvest is going to sell for, means that the USA will always have a strong agricultural industry, which gives the country the huge advantage of food security, which in the eyes of policymakers is worth having a slightly inefficient market. So the movement of goods and services between countries goes from completely free trade to regular trade restrictions to trade wars, and then on to outright sanctions at the most extreme end. For goods and services, countries control where their partners sit on this spectrum through restrictions and subsidies, and it will work exactly the same way with people just the other way round. While countries want to restrict the import of foreign goods and services and encourage their local goods to be exported to other markets, they want to encourage the import of skilled workers and restrict their own skilled labour from leaving the country. Although in both cases the end goal is to maintain and expand local industries. So far the only thing advanced economies have needed to do to attract skilled workers is to increase quotas, a classic tool used to restrict trade. When economists are talking about human beings they don't actually call it quotas, they call it visas, but it's effectively the same thing. A skilled worker that wanted to move to Australia would need to apply for one of the limited number of skilled worker visas and be approved. By easing this limitation, Australia could effectively attract an unlimited amount of skilled workers. Other countries that are less attractive to foreign workers need to try a bit harder and offer incentives to the people coming in. This could come in the form of low taxes, discounted housing, guaranteed jobs or some combination of all of these. This is still rare, but countries and even cities have made headlines by offering houses for a dollar. And countries like the Gulf states from earlier are also making themselves attractive to workers by having very low taxes. What these countries are effectively doing is offering subsidies to attract skilled workers. This doesn't sound so bad until it's realised that governments could also use tools like tariffs and outright bans. A tariff would come in the form of taxation on workers leaving their home country on top of the taxes they would have to pay in the country they end up working in. 
This is called citizenship-based taxation as opposed to residence-based taxation, which means people pay their taxes only in the country where they live and work, even if they are a citizen of another country. Today, there's only one country in the world that has this system, and that's the United States. Partially this is because the US is one of the few countries with enough influence and administrative capacity to make sure all their citizens are paying taxes no matter where in the world they end up. This can make leaving the US for better opportunities artificially less enticing because their citizens would end up paying two sets of income taxes, which would probably eliminate the benefit of the higher income in the first place. Some other countries have more targeted versions of these tax rules where citizens will need to pay taxes in their home country if they move to a tax haven, but more and more countries are now considering a similar model to the US system, so they'll still benefit from their skilled workers even if they do lose them. For developing countries, this could be a huge opportunity. The government could generate a lot more tax revenue by sending a worker overseas to a high income country than they would by keeping that worker on shore and taxing them at a job with a lower income. If countries could effectively do this, then skilled workers could become a very valuable export. But there are challenges. Countries that want skilled workers are under no obligation to share how much a migrant or expat worker is making with their home country, and developing countries certainly don't have the capacity and influence of the USA to make them cooperate. The most extreme way that countries could win the battle for skilled workers is simply by banning their own people with certain skills from working abroad. This obviously happens in authoritarian regimes like North Korea, Russia currently, the Soviet Union back in the day, and Iran to a lesser extent. But even advanced, open, free, and democratic countries have started implementing some restrictions on where skilled workers can and can't work. US citizens or residents with skills in the semiconductor industry are not allowed to work in the Chinese technology industry. For now, this is a move motivated more by geopolitics than pure economics, but it has shown that it's possible and could continue into the future. The unfortunate part of any restriction, be they of goods, services, or people, is that they come at the expense of the prosperity of the global economy in aggregate. The world is a much richer and more prosperous place today than it has been in any point in history, and that's thanks in part to these freedoms. Freedoms that can also offer a better life to millions of people. Hopefully before we start fighting skills wars, policymakers do consider that a better GDP figure doesn't mean much if it comes at the expense of their people's way of life. Thanks for watching mate. Bye.